Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta. We are fresh back from a slightly longer November break than we expected. Why? Jim was underneath a pumpkin patch in rural Indiana, digging through some tunnels, investigating some nefarious government research. But let's welcome him back now. Jim, how's it going? The upside down is very frightening, Lent. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. I'm only through six episodes, so I don't know what's happening yet. Guys. Okay. All I'm going to say is don't get to attest. Okay. <laughs> My theory through the first five episodes was that he was a double agent. Ah. But that seems not to be the case. So anyway, I am loving the uh, hairdos in the cars in Stranger Things. Yeah, they really are reveling in the 80s. It's so funny. I've spent the last... 48 hours or so researching Disney from the period and man, just Michael Eisner's hairdo during this period, which spent a lot of time under wow. a ball cap. I mean, talk about people using Farrah Fawcett's hair products. Jeez. Michael, Michael. There we go. So, Jim, let's start with some news here, and then we're going to do a listener question from what mm. I understand. That's our, uh, that's our topic for today. A couple of quick things I will note in passing. One, new plans for Caribbean Beach have been released. They show what looks to be a new table service restaurant. Over in the old Port Royal section, I am told, Jim, that this is still going to be called Shutters, which is like saying, you know what? Salmonella has a, a certain cachet with the public. Let's keep using it as a name. Oh. So is it, is it your understanding? <laughs> what, what? They already know the term gonorrhea, Jim. What? Okay. So is it your understanding that this is going to be a second table service restaurant to go along with shutters in other words are they going to have two sit-down restaurants at caribbean beach because of the extra people or is this the idea that this is going to be it we're going to call it shutters but the only thing that's going to be the same is the name is that what's your understanding of this this is one of those straddle decisions there are people who have very fond memories of the old Port Real and shutters at the caribbean beach in its original form and so with this reinvention and with the idea of when this place reopens, it's like, who are you calling a moderate? Right. So this is hanging on to the name, going much more upscale, but still understanding that we'll be coming up on, geez, 30 years? Oh, I'm old. <laughs> Next year when, when you know the, the stuff starts to pop over there. And so it's trying to keep an old name on a new face, a, a much more upscale restaurant, but with the nostalgia appeal of come on over to Shutters and bring your wallet this time. Yeah, I would be surprised if they kept the name only because it had such a negative connotation before. But I mean, I asked the official question at Disney. I got the official answer. That's what it was. That was mm -hmm. earlier this year. Uh, it may change. Keeping with the hotel development in Walt Disney World, have you seen the new concept art for... Coronado Springs, the lobby. Which of the drawings are we talking about here, Len? This is the one with sort of a perspective that goes right to the middle. It shows the lobby. It's got what I can only say is sort of like Spanish-influenced gingerbread walls. So carved through rock walls, high ceilings, marble floors. Have you seen this one? Yeah. The whole notion here is the place you've been to before, only bigger, better. I mean, this is feeding into the, the new central building, right? The high rise? Yeah. And that's the thing that surprises me here. This is a much more elegant looking lobby than anything that currently exists at Coronado Springs right now. If I think of Coronado Springs right now, I'm thinking of small town Mexico or small town mm -hmm. Southwest United States. Pueblos, earth tones, small scale stuff. This looks like this could be in Las Vegas. I think Las Vegas architecture is actually kind of fun. 
So mm-hmm. no, they, they've got the entertainment architecture idea down cold there in in that town. When the Coronado was originally built, this was going to be the convention hotel for those folks who couldn't necessarily hold a convention right. at the Contemporary or for the Dolphin of the Swan. Yeah, they did tend to bury the needle in the other direction. And this retooling, repositioning of this hotel, they want from the moment you enter to this is that much more upscale. This is not the Coronado that you remembered. I mean, not to circle back to the Caribbean and, and Shutter's issue again, but when people come back for the 50th anniversary, yeah. remembering these two properties and the transportation system and all that are all part and parcel of the 50th anniversary. They're anticipating tens of thousands of people who haven't been to the Walt Disney World in years will be coming back and they want them to come to places that they knew and go, whoa, when did this change? I know it seems like it's far away, the 50th anniversary, which is in 2021, but I mean, Disney seems to have planned out literally every day between now and then in terms of construction work. They've already gone vertical with Coronado Springs, with the big building. There's uh, the yeah. first floor is already done. The, the, it looks like they're getting ready to lay the concrete on the, uh, the second floor. So they're currently moving that along. I think something, Jim, that's also motivating Disney here. Let's talk about Universal buying 110 acres in land adjacent to their theme park. They've now got almost 600 acres available for expansion. Did that surprise you at all, this news this week, that they bought 110 acres? If you look at the site plan, mm-hmm. this allows them to access from two points, that 405 acres that they previously picked up. People can access the site from Sand Lake. And I want to say the other side's Kirkman, or is it Major Boulevard? Yeah, if you think about Kirkman running north and south and Sand Lake Road running east and west, it's the lower right-hand side of that that intersection that they've got 400 and some acres on. I mean, the closest thing to what what they had, there is Wet n' Wild, right? Because the Wet n' Wild parking is basically on the other side of Kirkman. From that, and you're maybe two thirds of a mile, three quarters of a mile away from City Walk there. So you would have to go across I 4 for anything here, but that's 575 acres is way more than what they have now for the other parks and resorts and stuff. No, absolutely. But the whole point with this chunk of property is this is Universal's future. This chunk of property, which allowed them guests to come and go from two separate points, mm-hmm. as soon as it came to the market, Universal jumped on it. Just a word of caution, though. I've, I've been hearing from friends that there may be some mediation involved with the initial land purchase, that I guess that the seller is not entirely happy with what's going on. and But the, but the Universal owns it, right? Well, I guess that's now... In question, a couple of friends in Orlando have just given me the heads up that there's some secondary issues with the original land purchase. And Comcast has basically handed Universal the money fire hose, has given them access to the break glass to release lawyers. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. It'll get resolved is what you're saying. They may not move on that piece of land as fast as I think everybody would think. But again, this is the future. This is where Universal will be shifting to and you will see there now become secondary issues about transportation system and how do you provide linkage and remember there was that plan for the giant hotel on the wet and wild site 
here's Disney spending all of this money on making sure that it's walled city, you know, down I-4, nobody leaves. Mm -hmm. They get on the gondolas and go back and forth, or the, the Skyliner, and they never go down the street to Universal. And here's Universal prepping its own walled city. And it kind of makes me fearful for the other attractions down and around, you know, it's just like SeaWorld at this point. In fact, did you see the story about how Merlin is sort of kicking the tires on... on I think our listeners, Jim, know that I called the Merlin thing two years ago. If anyone's been listening to this, I think Merlin is the most obvious candidate to buy SeaWorld in Orlando would add to their other properties with, without a doubt. But did you see at least the opening gambit was, well, you know, we want Busch Gardens Williamsburg and we want Busch Gardens Tampa, but probably not SeaWorld. Yeah, that's kind of stunning. Yeah, to they're me. trying to catch a falling knife there. The thing that might be interesting in terms of Universal is there are two or three hotels that are now the land bridge. They're the thing, the barrier between Universal joining up all of these properties across I four. Mm -hmm. There's a Motel Six. There's a Four Points Sheridan. There's the monumental Movie Land, which if that thing goes up in flames, no one is going to miss. I'm sorry. And then Fun Spot Orlando. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a lot of land right there. It's sort of in that interchange where Kirkman Road and I-4 and 435 and 400 and for all I know, a wormhole into outer space all converge in Orlando together. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a nightmare of, of concrete, but, but Fun Spot's right there. That, it's an idea. No, no, definitely. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of interesting things going on there. And if they do that, I mean, it, they would keep all of the other hotels to the south and west of them with just – become super popular. And I think what you'd see there, right? And here I'm talking about like the smaller hotels, the International Palms, the Ramada Plaza, the West Gates, the Stay Sky Suites, the Country Inns. Places like that would be under enormous pressure to either up their game or sell to someone who will. See a whole lot of development happen there. And speaking of hotel development, oh, James, no, no, no. It, go ahead. If I could just jump in here for a sec, because I tripped over this wonderful little factoid that I know you of all people will love about Universal. And when they initially tried to get into the Orlando market, this was October of 76, and they kicked the tires of SeaWorld. They actually came in and made a, an offer for, I think they was buying up shares at $22 a piece. With the idea of getting the entire theme park at that point for $35 million. <laughs> $35 million. <laughs> the reason Universal had the potential of spending $35 million in one lump sum at that time is that the previous summer, their hit film, the first real summer blockbuster. Please say it's Jaws. It's Jaws. <laughs> yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> so think about it. You, you make all this money on a movie with a shark and it's like, you know. What do we buy? More fish. We buy more, more fish. fish. <laughs> exactly. And literally, at one point, SeaWorld reaches out to them through back channels and says, there's another buyer who's literally bidding 50000 more dollars. Can you just up your bid a little? And Lou Wasserman was so offended by them reaching through the back channels. And it's like, look, we made a bid. We're universal. And I thought we agreed. You're letting somebody come in the last minute and steal this out from under us. And that was Harcourt Brace Yovanovich. <laughs> the book publishers that own SeaWorld. <laughs> Not only the book publishers, Len... The textbook publishers, because again, these are people who know entertainment. That's exactly the line you should use. I mean, who knows entertainment more than textbook publishers? 
totally go with that. Oh, Lord, that's funny. But evidently, Lou Wasserman regretted it for the rest of his life. I mean, Sidney Scheinberg would tell stories about Lou would be looking at his office from BlackRock at Universal Studios Hollywood, and during a quiet moment, he'd just offer up on his own, we should have bought SeaWorld. <laughs> I mean, he regretted yeah. it, and... Now, anybody regrets buying SeaWorld. Yeah, I think so. only one company now regrets buying SeaWorld. But Jim, let's move on, because Disneyland has some news, too. <laughs> Disneyland announced the construction of a new hotel. Now, we had speculated on this for a while, but I, I think the thing that surprised us was the number of things that are closing to make room for this yeah. hotel. This is the ESPN zone, and what else in downtown Disney? A friend reached out and said, have you heard about what's going on with Rainforest Cafe at Walt Disney World? They've been asked to take down the volcano out front of the building? In Disney Springs. At Disney Springs. Really? And it was during this conversation, well, Rainforest is willing to do whatever Disney asks at this point because they're losing the one in Anaheim. And it's like, they're losing the one in Anaheim? And it's like, I didn't tell you that. <laughs> Damn it, me and my Tourette's. <laughs> Disney announced, and, and what was this, like a year, year and a half ago, the four-star hotel that was going to be built in the short-term parking lot for downtown Disney Anaheim, the place where you can park for five hours for free if you get validation, that right. sort of thing. And they talked about, you know, it was going to be Disneyland's first four-star because Disney had done the research and they found that there was demand for a hotel of this sure. kind. And then next to that was going to be, I want to say, a, a 6,000 expansion of the Mickey and Friends parking lot. But with the understanding that on the other side of the property, down by the Eastern Gateway, there was going to be a 6,800 parking structure built and and then a walkway that would take folks across to the park through basically where the carousel inn was now located and a transportation hub that was going to take all of that bus drop-off area that's between a disneyland park and dca the hollywood section and make that available to put this walkway in and then potentially to bump out the borders of the hollywood section and then there was a new city council. Right. So how much? So there was some debate among the city council of Anaheim about how much of a tax break they were going to give to Disneyland, and there was some discussion there about that. Right. Two years ago, Disney basically avoided a tax by saying, "Look, we're going to put a billion dollars." into the parks. And so it's like, okay, so it, we got behind that idea, but then the billion is being spent on a parking garage and the billion is being spread out with Star Wars land. And suddenly it was like, well, where's this part that comes back into the local economy? It got difficult. It got spiky. You've seen in like the, just in the last six to eight months, Disney has relocated its bag yep. check. Now, when you come out of the Mickey and Friends garage, the bag check before you get on the tram you're, you're doing that disney's thinking was they wanted people to get into the park that much faster they didn't want their entrance to disney either of the two california parks to be dogged by this, this yeah security once you're park. in you're in i mean it, it does make sense yeah but the people who were coming from the eastern gateway the security point was going to be after you parked your car you walked away and then you were going to be in this land bridge that went over harbor and would not allow access to Harbor. Oh, okay, all right. So that was the big problem, right? The pedestrian access. And from Disney's point of view, you can understand yeah. 
we live in a world that needs a certain level of security. But at the same time, if you're the guy who's running the IHOP or the McDonald's or the gift shops down in Harbor and watching tens of thousands of people walk by every day. Walk, walk above you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is an, an interesting pickle there because they've got both the local merchants to, if not please, then at least not make really, really mad. And on the other hand, they've got their own guests spread across all of these acres. And essentially, they're, they're doing what Universal's doing, right? They're, they're trying to buy up land now when other people have, have moved in around it. It's, it's almost the same scenario. So yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens there. Jim, I, I, did, I don't want to talk to you about this. Disney announced a retheming of the Paradise Pier section of Disneyland to now Pixar Pier. Yep. Two questions. Mm-hmm. Is theming dead? I mean, is the, is the Disney theme park dead? No, no. What's the theme of Disney California Adventure these days, Jim? Um, well, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Pixar, mm-hmm. Hollywood Land. Okay, fair enough. But what what is California about this? Well, <laughs> all right. But let's be blunt here. Okay, Hollywood Land is basically going away. That's the Marvel section land. Okay, so that's Marvel. We'll have Marvel, Pixar, Guardians of the Galaxy, which is Marvel as well. You've got. The area in the front of the park, which is soaring over, soaring around the world. It's not even soaring over California anymore. And then you've got the Grizzly River Rapid, or Grizzly River Run. Mm-hmm. Ostensibly Californian, at least until Marvel comes up with a, uh, a bear character in space. <laughs> but, no, but seriously, I mean, this is, still, this is the, sort of the larger issue. I mean, is, is the idea of DCA dead? Is Disney just saying, look, California as a theme park theme doesn't work? Is, is that what this is about? Let's be honest here, Len. When they landed on the idea of of California in 96 after two attempts at Westcott. Half the stuff that was in Disney's California Adventure was stuff that had been done for Disney's America that was just slightly tweaked. I mean, soaring really can be traced back to the Victory Field attraction and the county fair with its wooden roller coaster and merry-go-round became Paradise Pier. I mean, there's so much stuff that they just sort of tacked a California theme onto of the wreckage of Disney's America. I think the thing that people haven't put together yet about Pixar Pier is that by renaming, you know, for example, California Screaming now becoming Incredible Incredible Steam's attraction and the Slinky Dog Spinner that's going to go in in where the the area where the Ursula Spinner was supposed to go in years and years and years ago. Yeah, they're doing Inside Out. I think I think we're somewhere in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. fair enough. All right. The reason they're doing a lot of this is that with the Eastern Gateway project now being canceled and with that walkway that we were just talking about, they're now still going to need the bus drop-off area to stay exactly where it is, which means that the Marvel area can't bump out into that space. So Marvel is going to eat up a lot of real estate land. Okay, okay, okay. I got it now. Okay, so Marvel is going to take up more, more of the existing land less of the expansion land. Yes. So if you really like a Bugs Land, folks, now might be the time to get in a few more rides on the Heimlich train that lasts all of 30 seconds, because that's pretty much how long this is going to last. I mean, again, by... 
It's got the life of a June bug. Is that what you're saying? There we go. Particularly one headed toward a windshield at 60 miles an hour. I mean, (laughs) we've basically got the Tron coaster that's going into the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. The word is that Disney's bought two of those. Oh, really? Yeah. And one was supposed to be redone for DCA's Marvel area as the Captain America's coaster. But you need an area for that to run around. And we've got the Iron Man attraction from Hong Kong Disneyland, the simulator, Mm -hmm. also coming. Basically, what Disney is doing is they want a Marvel-themed land that's just as compelling, that has just as much capacity as Galaxy's Edge. So remember, Galaxy's Edge is 14 acres land. And so they want a land that's at least that big, at least that compelling over at DCA. And that means if you look at how much acreage Hollywood Backlot is and how much acreage Bugs Land is, plus, you know, some back of a house, they really needed the bus drop-off area, you know, to expand out into. And now that they don't have it, for Pixar to maintain a strong presence in this park, and people enjoy Cars Land. And, and to take Paradise Pier and make give it a Pixar theme, I've heard that there's an iteration of this that will eventually walk up the hill as far as... The Little Mermaid. Evidently, that's the firewall, which means the Goofy Flying School could be rethemed as a Pixar attraction. Oh, yeah, yeah. The two restaurants down at Paradise Garden. Yeah, I'm I'm just assuming everything above Little Mermaid into either side of it is ripe for redevelopment. Yeah, and and even then, I think uh, some of the areas below that, Mm -hmm. the areas south of that, I I think will will also be be looked at. Like, do you you really need a, a trail run in your theme park, or can you put something else there? Things like that are the kind of decisions that'll uh, that'll happen. When do you see this all taking place, Jim? They want to have the first phase of it ready for 2018. So you're going to see things like the Mickey wheel. It's suddenly going to be themed from the outside. So at night, it looks like the giant Pixar ball. Okay. I mean, a lot of this stuff, for example, going with the Incredibles retheming of California Screaming, given that Incredibles 2 comes out next year, some of this is just a gimme. Yeah. But yeah, you'll see it start in 2018 and continue with the notion of May 2019 is when Galaxy's Edge opens and when a lot of people show up on the same day and are disappointed that they can't get into classic Disneyland to try you know, the Star Wars stuff. It's like, hey, have you checked out our new Pixar Pier area? With, which, by the way, has some new attractions that have just opened this year. So phase one, ready for 2018. You'll see partial phase two for 2019. And especially that first year or so of Galaxy's Edge open to try to mitigate the crowds, you'll see a lot of stuff open there. It'll be very, very heavily hyped. Interesting. All right. So we'll see some stuff next year and then following the year after that. That'll be it's a quick development cycle for Disney. We'll, we'll see what happens there. Let's segue into this. Keeping the idea of let's talk about media yeah. programs that have ended up in the parks. You've got a listener question about TV shows mm-hmm. that came into the parks, right? Yeah. Just want to give a quick shout out to Jonathan, the gentleman who sent us our Phineas and Ferb question here. Listener question that starts with, I remember that did you and Landon mentioned a while back plans to do a Phineas and Ferb attraction, the Imagination Pavilion, including a Hall of Innators. Did the plans fall through with the revised $2 million Epcot budget? Were there any current plans for a Phineas and Ferb attraction for the Imagination? 
Spanish Pavilion. Also, would you mind discussing the history of, of television shows that became attractions of the park and why Disney is generally more hesitant to base attractions on television IP? Love you guys' show and hope that you can share the history. So why not TV shows for theme park attractions? There was a time where Disneyland television show is launched in the fall of 1954. Mm-hmm. Disney's the first through the door to do a television show during a time when the entire industry sort of turns its back on it. When the Disneyland television show became hugely, hugely successful, other studios immediately jumped into the space. And MGM actually had a show on ABC called the MGM Parade that was basically the Disney show only without Walt. Though what's funny is the first episode, they actually make a joke to the effect of, you're going down to the depths and we may encounter Walt Disney and his Nautilus while we're down there. (laughs) Everybody else was rushing into the space, but it's like, it's the Walt playbook. I mean, they're in a curio-filled office and every so often they cut to a cartoon or a little Leo the Lion puppet. When television was new, Disney was happy to use television to try to get people to come to the parks. So first year that Disneyland's open, you have the Mickey Mouse Club Circus. Ran at the parks from Thanksgiving 55 till just a little bit after New Year's 56. It was, it was a disaster because people didn't go to Disneyland to go to the circus, to pay, particularly pay an extra admission once they're in the park to go into the circus. But that didn't mean that Walt then didn't lean heavily on the Mouseketeers to come out and perform at the park and appear and sign autographs. In fact, the big moose, Mouseketeer Roy Williams, went out virtually every weekend and signed autographs and do pictures for the kids and that sort of thing. It was yeah. a 57, 58, 59. Guy Williams and the cast of Zorro came out on five different weekends and they did this huge promotion. They'd start a sword fight on the roof of the golden horseshoe and then continue across the street and have sword fighting up on top of the Mark Twain and then he'd ride his black steed to the streets and people just ate this up. I can't imagine a TV star these days doing that in a park on a regular basis. It's just not going to happen. Disneyland did stuff with Davy Crockett, right? I mean, they, they promoted the Davy Crockett show. They yeah. Alright, so, so television's a a reasonable tie-in in the 50s. Does it continue into the 60s? What ended up happening in the 60s is this is suddenly Walt Disney with things like Babes in Toyland and Mary Poppins. And suddenly Disney has these big family films and realizes, well, wow, I can use the park to actually get people excited about these movies. And don't get me wrong, Walt was perfectly happy to use the television show. I mean, Disneyland was such a huge success at this point that it wasn't a question of I need to drive attendance to the park or use television people to get people to come to the park. Let's face it, it was only the locals that were going to go, hey, Guy Williams is there, let's drive out. Right. What Walt was doing now was he would do a show or two a year that was set at Disneyland with the notion of, hey, all you folks are on the other side of the Mississippi. Look at this amazing park we have. Come here. The formula got inverted for a while. And then, of course, we lose Walt in 66. And the company still looks to the park to help support the movies. There is a video on YouTube of the Christmas Parade on 1973 at Disneyland. And you have to understand that Robin Hood had just opened in theaters that holiday season. And so, Mm -hmm. no lie, the parade is 90% Robin Hood. There have Mm -hmm. to be two to 300 folks in this parade. You know, I mean, you're talking about, 
you know, this endless sea of people in elephant costumes and hippo costumes. And it's like, I think it costs more to make this parade dead than it did to make the movie. The film. <laughs> World's favorite Disney cartoon, by the way. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. How can you not love Peter Houston off as Prince John? But there you go. Now we get into the 70s and the 80s, and it gets tougher because Disney is still putting out films, but you're now in the age of George Lucas, we're now in the age of Steven Spielberg, and other people are doing Disney's job better than Disney. Right. Which leads us to Michael Eisner coming through the door in 84. And one of the reasons that Disney went after Michael Eisner was Paramount Pictures, the studio that Eisner's in charge of, releases Flashdance. They made that movie for $7 million, mm. and it ends up grossing $200 million. Wow. Okay. First two weeks the movie's out, they sell 700,000 copies of the soundtrack. It wins an Academy Award for the Flash to Hint's theme. What's genuinely bizarre is during the green mailing of the Walt Disney Company, one of the things that Disney did to try to save itself or make itself less attractive to the Saul Seinbergs and the Ivan Boskis is they bought mm-hmm. the American Greeting Company, which... Uh, green cards, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the reasons Disney wanted that is that American Greeting had created Rainbow Bright. And he was this character that had popular dolls and animated televisions. And again, this was an area where Disney was just lacking. They weren't in that space. So anyway, getting back to Eisner, he comes through the door October of 84. By February of 85, he set up the Walt Disney Television Animation Company. Ah, okay. I'm wondering where this is going. Okay, fair enough. He goes to NBC and pitches them the idea of doing a children's television show based on his son's favorite candy, gummy bears. To really put a point on how different things were back in the day there. Disney has a second show, which it sells to CBS, that it didn't even develop the characters for. Hasbro developed the characters for. Disney was going to do the animation. Hasbro developed the characters, and they were going halvesies on this show called The Wuzzles. I remember The Wuzzles. You remember Bumble Lion, the half Bumblebee, half Lion? Yes. The Wuzzles? They only made 13 episodes. They started showing the the new episodes, September of 85. They ran through all of them by December of of 1985. 13 episodes and done. Where the other show, The Gummy Bears, ran for... Years. Yeah, I mean, there were 90 episodes produced. And there's a Dixie Tricks video called Ready to Run. There's a Will Ferrell movie called Old School. There's a couple of episodes of Grounded for Life and Malcolm in the Middle where if you're paying close attention... In the background of these episodes are costumes for the Wuzzles. Really? Yes. And it was one of these things where for years I've been trying to figure out, are these legit or or, are these things that furry fans, did somebody commission these? But just the other day, I find on YouTube, NBC's broadcast of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade for 1985. And at the hour 54 minute thing in the broadcast. I, I picture you, Jim, in a dark room looking at this thing like it's the Zapruder film. But go ahead. And, and in fact, the quality is right up there. All right. Can I just... <laughs> okay. Is that good? All right. But anyway, so here comes this pathetic Disney float. I mean, literally, it's not a castle. It's a single tower. But on it to the front are cast members, Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy. And then they show the shot from the side and 
Holy cow. Here are the gummy bears. And we know that they did the gummy bears because they turned, you know, character costumes, but they turned out the park. But sure enough, here are the Wuzzles. They wow. created a Wuzzle character costume because Eisner wanted his characters he signed off on to show up in the parks. And he really did pursue this business model, this notion of let's work with the toy company and see if we can create stuff for the parks. Because you got to remember, one of the things is Michael was told going into Disney, you can't touch the Fab five right. we can't do television with those you can't do television with mickey mouse well it's like, look look babe ruth is the best player in baseball but you don't want to overuse him so you can only play him on tuesdays thursdays and saturdays <laughs> all right I, i'm serious right, in fact you know the, to be honest when ducktales finally came on television in 87 yeah. in the first episode they allow Donald, in fact, Donald makes two appearances in the show in the first season, but his screen time, you know, you would have thought it was like, I think the Treaty of Versailles. Like he's getting paid scale or something, yeah, right? I mean, it, it was like Donald, we, he's one of our all-stars, you, you know, we can't waste him on television. He says more than 20 words, he gets three points on the back end. We can't, we can't, <laughs> we can't. But, <laughs> but some of the stuff was so misguided. I mean, for example, Thanksgiving of 86. Disney with Kenner created a show called, I swear to God, Fluppy Dogs. The drugs were better in the 80s. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, wish they were because it would help so much with this show. <laughs> these are these dogs that travel between dimensions and that are made of yarn. <laughs> it's string theory, Jim. It's string theory. There you go. Okay. It, it works. <laughs> It was so bizarre during this period that Michael Eisner was so desperate for his own Disney flash dance. Because again, remember, mm -hmm. he was brought in to create new revenue streams for the company. And so he's looking around. He's like, you can't touch Mickey. You can't touch Goofy. And the door was open with Donald. That's like, OK. So we got to use Donald a little bit. But look at Minnie. So, yeah. oh, God, in 86, Disney, because Madonna is the hottest. That oh! Okay, I, I, all right, stop here. It links into the Minnie's Follies things. Let's stop the episode here. Yep. We'll pick this up on the next show. Because <laughs> there's video. I know where you're going with this. All so right, let's do that. Okay. <laughs> all right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Flashdance Adams. Please go onto iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show or your local arcade and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.